I've called this how to avoid the top 10 wildlife photography mistakes. Now, um, what I've done is chosen 10 common mistakes. They may or may not be the top 10, but they're certainly up there. And um, I thought I'd just talk through what you can do to avoid them, because for most people, when you well, when they go to take wildlife photographs, it's a safari, it's a vacation, it's some sort of a holiday. It might be a once-in-a-lifetime event for them, or certainly something that doesn't come around too often. So what you really want to do in those circumstances is come away with great photographs. So there is a lot of preparation that you can do before you go, and I've spoken about that in other podcasts. And looking at these mistakes, what I'm going to leave for you to do is to look at the ones that you tend to make. And I'll leave it to you to come up with a way of uh, perhaps getting yourself some better habits so that you don't make them again. So let's go straight into it. And the first one I'm going to talk about is shooting down onto the animal. Now, if you've seen my work, you know that I've done a lot of uh, photographs with whales. And if you've listened to or been on any of my webinars, you know that this is one of the things I'll tend to talk about. And this is true whether you're photographing animals at sea or on land. The best thing you can do for most photographs is to try and get to the animal's eye level. Now, if you think about it, if you're in a vehicle, in a four-wheel drive, typically safari vehicles, um, a lot of them have that roof panel that lifts right up and then you stand up in the vehicle and start shooting. Um, unless you're shooting at an elephant or a giraffe, the chances are that what you're shooting at is below you. So if I'm in that kind of vehicle, quite often what I'll do is get down between the seats and shoot out of one of the windows. Now, usually they have a slide panel that you can just slide out of the way and then you're directly outside with your lens. And that's how I prefer to shoot. Um, obviously, you can't get out of the four-wheel drive in most situations. And I definitely um, encourage you not to do that. And also, if you're in a four-wheel drive vehicle or any vehicle that is open on the sides, just make sure you keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle. And that's very important with uh, most wildlife, because if they see something odd sticking out of the vehicle, they might want to come and investigate. And you probably don't want to be the thing that they're investigating. So that's the first tip. Try and get down. Often the tip is to get down low. So you're shooting eye level. You're shooting at the same level that they are. Um, how well you're able to do that will depend upon where you are and the kind of vehicle that you're in. But that's tip number one. Now, the second tip comes to lighting. And often people will end up shooting at midday where you've got the sun in most, if you're in kind of equatorial areas, the sun will be directly above you. And that gives you quite a hard lighting. It tends to bleach things out. It gives you very hard shadows. And the best time to shoot for most photographers is at the time that we refer to as golden hour. And there are two of those each day. Um, you've got the hour after dawn and the hour before dusk. So basically the sun is low. You'll also often get a uh, kind of orangey tinge. So the, if you're shooting colour, the colours can be a bit more interesting and um, uh, perhaps a bit more emotive is another way to think about it. But definitely that golden hour is a good time to shoot. So I preferred to do that when I could when I was photographing whales, definitely photographing animals. So on a lot of safaris, 
when you um, get up to meet the uh, the guide and the vehicle that you're in, it will often be quite early in the morning, and that's the reason for it. So although you might not be that good at getting up in the morning, early in the morning, and I can certainly sympathise with that, it is undoubtedly the best time to shoot. And also, if you're around at sunset, that also is a brilliant time to be shooting animals. But what if you can't do anything about the time that you're shooting? Well, if you are shooting at midday where you've got very harsh light, black and white is a good option because that can uh, those photographs can often come out quite well. The thing to do, though, is to try and make sure the animal's eye is, is lit. So avoid having situations where the eye is in shadow because, again, when you're taking a photograph of an animal, anybody looking at that photograph, we connect through our eyes, whether you're photographing a person or an animal. That's where the connection really happens. So if you've got really good eye contact and the eyes are well lit, you're going to have a uh, the, the kind of key ingredients to shoot a very good photograph. So that's the second um, tip. Try and avoid shooting at midday. Try and make use of where the lighting is softer. Your animal's eyes are hopefully well lit and then you get that really good connection with them. Okay, so the third tip is to be aware of your ISO. And given that I've said that often the best time to shoot is when the light is softer, so just after dawn or before sunset, what's typically happening there from a photographer's point of view is that the ISO that you'll need to get the correct exposure and the right shutter speed will be changing relatively rapidly because if the sun's coming up, the amount of light that you see is increasing uh, almost minute by minute, and the same at sunset when it's going down. And the difficulty we have is that our visual system, if you like, the combination of our eyes and our brain, is very good at compensating for the available light to so that we have... Um, quite a good picture that we're seeing and of course cameras don't work that way we need to tell them what to do unless you're in full auto which I don't recommend so do regularly check the ISO you're using also be aware that the ISO might be much higher than you would expect so you might be um, uh, 6400 for example sorry yeah 6400 um, as an ISO setting, particularly if you're used to landscapes and things like that, or or taking photographs where you might have a longer exposure. Because with animals, with wild animals, often you need a quite a high shutter speed. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Um, and that allows you to capture the action, because often things will happen pretty quickly. So in order to give yourself the best possible chance of capturing the action, the first, thing, the first thing you need to do is make sure your ISO is high and it's it's correct for the available light that you're shooting in. Okay, and that does take me on to tip number four or, or the mistake number four, and that is that, the, that people use the wrong shutter speed. So the thing to bear in mind is if you're trying to freeze action, you want to be in thousandths of a second. So to absolutely freeze everything, the shutter speed that you want typically is thousandths of a second. So if it's a whale breaching and you want to capture all the droplets of water as they spray uh, away from the whale or as the water runs off the whale as it comes out of the, the water, you need to be in thousandths of a second. 
If, however, you want movement in the photograph, so let's say that you've got a, an animal, let's say, let's say a zebra, for the sake of argument, running, the thing, the way to shoot that and get a blurred background but have the animal reasonably sharp is to shoot using hundredths of a second. So you're going an order of magnitude lower, but you, then you're tracking the animal. So ideally, you want to be focused on the eye, you want to be tracking on the eye of the animal. And that will mean that the hopefully the head is reasonably sharp. The body also is reasonably sharp. There'll be movement in the legs if they're in view, but the background behind the animal will be blurring. So you'll have those um, lines um, where, where, where um, things that are behind the animal are blurring. So you get that those lines, but you get that movement in the image. What a lot of people do is set the wrong shutter speed and then they just get a blurry image where nothing's sharp, nothing's in focus. Now, one or two of those are okay as maybe a more abstract kind of an image, but um, it's not likely to be a, a great photograph. So be conscious of your shutter speed. Know what shutter speed you need to get the kind of result you need and then bring that back to the uh, the aperture that you need to be shooting with to maintain that shutter speed, have the right depth of field, and also the ISO that I've just been talking about to uh, make sure that you've got the right sensitivity for the available light that you have. And as I've said in the uh, the previous tip, be conscious that that amount of light typically is changing minute by minute if you're in the, either of the two golden hours that you have every day. Um, during the day where you've got um, let's say strong midday sun, then the, the lighting, uh, the available light is going to be reasonably constant for, for those hours. But um, it's when you're in gold now, which is the best time to shoot, you need to be aware that the amount of light is changing uh, minute by minute. Okay, so that's the first four. The next thing I wanted to talk about is um, composition and going in too close. So a lot of Really good wildlife photographs are where you get in really tight on the animal and you get a view of the animal that you wouldn't normally see. And this is one of the powers of photography and um, one of the, the great ways of showing animals in their natural environment, but getting in close enough to the action that people see it in a level of detail and um, at, at a kind of proximity that they wouldn't normally have. However, in order to get that shot, you need to be conscious of what's going on with the animals. So one example of that is um, uh, when I was photographing um, humpback whale, we'd been with this whale that was breaching every now and again, but it had, it had gone under the water and it had been down for a few minutes and we weren't quite sure where it was. And one of the things I'll tend to do in that circumstance is pull my zoom lens back so I've zoomed out a little bit so that when the animal does come up again, when the whale does breach, hopefully I can get the whole animal in the frame. And this is what happened on that particular occasion. I was with some other photographers. Everyone had set their zoom to where the animal was before, so the distance the whale had been away from us when it had last breached. But when it breached next, it was much closer to the boat. And pretty much everyone had their zoom set wrong. They were too close. They couldn't get the whole animal in. So they were getting a sort of detail of the belly or the head or a petrol fin, whatever it was, but they weren't getting the whole animal. And on, on that occasion, I managed to judge it right, and I pulled back on my zoom, and I did have the, the whole animal. Having got that shot, I could then re, I could then crop it in post, so that I had the the kind of level of 
detail and context of the animal that I wanted and had the whole animal in frame. Now, equally, if you've got animals um, together, and I'm thinking of a, a little group of, I think, in fact, I've seen this two or three times now, where you get a, a family of lions, typically lionesses or young animals playing together. It's good to zoom out a little bit because if you zoom in too tightly, you can end up with just a part of the animal. And they can, once you start playing, they can move around fairly quickly. And if your zoom's wrong, you're going to be too close to see for, for someone to see what's going on. So although zooming in is really good, and it's something I do a lot, be aware of what the animal's doing and be aware of the circumstances and be prepared to zoom out and maybe not be as close to your subject when you take the initial shot but give yourself that option to kind of kind of zoom back in to the area that's relevant in post-processing so crop the photograph in post to get the the final composition that makes that whole photograph work okay um number (laughs) number six might sound obvious but it's not cleaning your lens and um so I've, i've kind of said this for a reason and I've had this in a couple of environments. So one is if you're in, say, seawater, if you are photographing whales or something else at sea, be conscious that you can get spray from the animal doing something or it breathing. Um, So, for example, if a whale uh, comes up and breathes uh, close to you, you can get this, you'll get the... um, uh, the, the, the plume from, from the whale as it breathes out, the blow. But that can kind of blow back over you if the wind happens to bring it over you. Uh, it's not something that you really want to be breathing in, but you can get just bits of spray on your lens as well. So just be conscious of, again, the environment you're in. And are you inadvertently picking up um, you know, dirt of some sort on your lens? This can also be true in a dusty environment, and um, I've been in environments where it is very dusty, even just the dust um, thrown up by the wheels of the, the vehicle that I'm in. And if you drive and then stop, drive and then stop, you can inadvertently end up in a little bit of a cloud. And of course, that dust gets everywhere. So a couple of things to, to bear in mind there. One is to make sure you've got decent cleaning kit, so lens cleaner, microfiber cloth, that sort of thing, just to make sure and periodically just check your lens and clean it if it, if it does need um, cleaning. Also, what I found works very well is to have a spray cover on my lens and my body on, on the camera because I've had a situation where sometimes you can get a very fine dust and it can find its way in in between the, um, the lens and the body. And then I've actually had a situation where I was starting to get regular error messages come up that the... Uh, the lens and the body couldn't communicate. I was able to take the lens off and clean the, the contacts, but I kept having this, this issue come back again. And it was because I was getting very fine dust um, getting in, inside the, the camera contacts, which obviously is not what you want at all. And then obviously the worst possible thing is getting dust on the uh, the sensor itself. So do be aware of the environment and prevention is definitely better than cure. And uh, I do recommend having a, a spray cover um, and just to keep the the, um, the camera body itself very clean and the lens um, itself very clean, and that way um, you're likely to you know have a reliable camera setup, which is really what you need. Okay, with number seven, I'm going to talk about not re- respecting the animal, and that that works in in different ways. 
The worst way to not respect an animal, and I have seen this in some parks, is where the driver, this might also be the guide, but they drive at the animal. If, if I've seen it where a lion was just basically lying in the ground, which is what they like to do during the day a lot of the time. So if you're looking at a lot of these animals during the day, most of the time, if they if they hunt at twilight or at night, they're going to be just lying around doing nothing. So the thing to do is just respect that, let them do their thing. And I did see, and I've seen it, as I say, a few times where a driver has driven up really close to the animal to try and provoke it to do something. And so, so that the guests can get a photograph. Now, I, I'm absolutely against that. I think it um, is completely wrong that that's not um, a good way to um, have tourism. I mean, it stresses the animals. Um, it will make them more wary of animals, so of um, four-wheel drives. So they'll tend to stay away from the tracks. And again, in, in these parks, you have tracks that you're allowed to drive on. And um, the animals obviously just roam free. Again, a decent guide will stick to the tracks. Not all of them do. And that's also another kind of red flag that whoever you're with is... Um, is not respecting the animals. And I would um, certainly recommend um, raising that or giving them a bad review or whatever, because this isn't um, good tourism. So respecting the animal is is really important. And um, so just being quiet around them, you know, they're going to be doing their thing. Often with animals, if you do sit there and you're very quiet, they will get used to you being there and then they'll just carry on doing the normal thing. And that's where you can get some really good photographs. So don't be impatient. Um, be aware that a lot of the really good photographs that you see and also um, the, the wildlife video that you'll see on, say, BBC programs, things like that, they, they spend a lot of time, you know, months, years sometimes to get these photographs. And it's just down to being patient and allowing the animal to feel relaxed enough with you that it will just do its natural thing and it might walk around have a look at you might be curious and then you get the opportunity to get really great shots but most shots take time and that that's another thing to bear in mind so do be respectful of the environment that you're in um tip number eight or mistake number eight is people don't get a good guide and guides really are worth their weight in gold and the reason that they are is they know the environment they know the area they know what different animals will tend to do so if you're looking at a predator they'll know that uh, they might go to different parks parts of the reserve over a period so here i'm thinking of um, a place called kana in india where i was um, photographing tigers and that park was set up in different zones and often the tigers would sort of travel throughout the park. They'll just kind of go around their area. And um, you might find them um, in certain areas on different days. And one of the things about the guides at Kana, and I'm sure it's true of a lot of other areas, is that a lot of the guides chat in the morning as they're getting ready, as they're getting ready to take their guests out. And they'll compare notes on when anim where animals were last seen. And they'll have a feel for where the animals are likely to be. Now, in Kana, we were actually allocated a different zone each day. So if you were lucky, you were in a zone where the tigers were. But if you weren't, then that was, you know, just part of it, unfortunately. And this is why 
some people will go to reserves. I've seen, heard this a number of times with tigers, for example, and they'll go out several times, but they won't see any tigers at all. So it is the luck, the luck of the draw. So having a good guide is really good for getting an idea of where animals are likely to be. Secondly, a good guide can read what we call the spore, and that's laid down by the animal. Now, that can be footprints, it can be dung, it can be broken uh, or damaged vegetation, um, all sorts of things. Anything that's left behind by the animal is referred to as spore. A good guide can read it because it's there. It's like um, the story <laughs> of that area over the last few hours. They can they know the language, they can read the story. So they've got a good idea of what they're likely or what you're likely to see, what they're likely to be able to show you. They also know the behavior of the animals. So if you are really dead set on seeing a predator, the first thing is to know what time of day they normally hunt. So if it's at twilight or at night, there's not much point hanging around at midday because you're really unlikely to see anything at all. Because as I've said, a lot of these predators are just resting during the day. You know, it's too hot for them. They just find a nice shady area and um, they just sleep or they might have a kill that they made that night. They'll be protecting that from scavengers and uh, maybe feeding. So a good guide will know the times of day to go looking for things. And if you really want to see a predator, the place to go is where the um, where the prey is, because obviously that's where the predator's going to go as well. So um, a good guide is, is really worth their weight in gold. They'll be able to explain things to you, be able to tell you more about the behavior of the animal. They'll be able to explain what's going on. They might share what they're seeing from the spore so that you'll know what they're seeing. Um, another thing is they'll be listening for certain animals. So in some circumstances, certain Prey animals will make an alarm sound if they um, sense a predator there to warn others of their own species. But obviously other prey animals or potentially prey animals will tune in to those alarm calls as well. And a good guide will know, will be able to just stop and listen and, and have an idea of what's going on. So they really are worth their weight in gold and um, a good one will give you a great experience. Okay, going back to the camera, I'm going to talk a, bit, a little bit about long lenses and this does reflect on you and what you're able to handle. The lens I use is a 100-400mm. Now, it's fairly heavy. It's certainly the longest and biggest lens that I can handhold. And one of the... So I'll share a tip that I do. With my bodies, there is an option on the bodies to have... Um, uh, um, a connector on the bottom, or a thing that bolts on the bottom, basically, that takes a second battery. So you end up with two batteries rather than one. I, I do that with my bodies, but not so much for having the extra battery, but because it adds weight to the back of the camera and it's got a larger grip. So that's all part of the thing. It just slides onto the body un under a little panel um, so that the um, all the electronics can connect and then you hook it all in. But the effect of that when you when I'm handling the camera is although it's heavier with that on there, it actually brings the um, um, center of gravity, so the balancing point on the camera and lens combination, a little bit further back, so it's close to me. And I just find that makes a huge difference to handling the camera, and it means I can be much more stable um, hand-holding that camera. However, if you've got a larger lens, say something like a three, uh, sorry, a six hundred mil. That can be much harder 
to handhold. You've got you've got to be shooting a very fast shutter speed, as a minimum one six hundredth of a second, and probably faster than that. So if you are in that situation, you've got to think about how you're going to stabilize your camera. Now, you might have a tripod, you might be able to use a tripod, and that's good. But that might also be quite cumbersome. So if you're in a vehicle, you're not going to be able to use that. Um, On a boat, I'd say you're really going to be struggling, quite frankly, because if you're photographing whales, you've got to be able to move quite a large quite a large area but you might have to move up down side to side and i honestly unless you've got a um, a really good mount that's bolted into the boat somehow you're you're probably going to struggle if you're in a, a land vehicle a four-wheel drive then you can rest on the side of the vehicle but be aware that you're going to get movement from other people moving around in the vehicle because that's what tends to happen. So again, it's a, a good argument for shooting much faster than you need to just to minimise the effects of other people suddenly moving just as you're taking your shot. And the other thing is if the, if the engine's idling, so sometimes they'll stop and turn the engine off, other times they'll idle it, but you might get the vibration of the engine through the, the body of the car. So I recommend taking a beanbag, something like that, just to put between the the lens and the vehicle, because at the very least that will dampen out some of that vibration. But it is something to to think about, and um, more so if you've got a very long lens. Uh, otherwise, you you just need to be shooting a bit faster so you can handhold. Um, but I I would practice handholding and shooting fast, just so you get good at it and you get used to. Um, controlling your breath when you're pressing the shutter button, all those kind of things to um, have the best possible chance of getting a, a good result with your photography. Okay, and then finally, number 10, I'm going to talk about dressing appropriately. So you don't need to go full camo, but you do need to be conscious. So don't turn up in bright yellows, bright reds, things like that, because you'll just stand out and you'll pretty much scare everything away. <laughs> so I generally wear um I, I wear long sleeves and um long leg like full length uh lightweight trousers partly to protect me from the sun and partly to minimize getting bitten by things or leeches or insects or whatever else it might be but I use a, a neutral color so I'll use a beige or a brown um something like that um, or a black or a grey, but no bright colours. So think pastels, think natural colours, so greens, blacks, browns, the sort of colours you're going to see in the environment that you're in. So you don't need to buy a whole new camo wardrobe to go and do this, but do just dull down so that you don't, you basically you don't want to stand out. Uh, you, I have tracked animals on foot before, or I've been in um, places like the Okavango Delta when I was went there and was camping, and we would go for walks with a guide. There'd be a group of us, but you want to be in these colours so you blend in as much as possible. You just don't want to stand out. So do just think about the colours you're using. Some people use um, camo on their lenses as well. I, I don't, uh, but I do like to use um, uh, a spray cover. Uh, that's a, like a, it's a light grey. So rather than my my lens, my long lens is white. Those Canon Pro lenses where they make the lenses white, but that's um, 
they're probably a little bit bright for wildlife, honestly. You'd be better off with a black lens or just cover them in some way. So that was tip number 10. So I guess just to um, recap, so the first thing I spoke about was trying to get to eye level. So don't make the mistake of shooting down onto the animal all the time. Second thing is think about the time of day. And ideally, you want to be shooting where you've got a softer light. So typically, that's golden hour, either in the morning or the afternoon. If you're going to shoot at midday where you've got a harsh light, then maybe think black and white. But whatever you do, try and make sure the animal's eye is getting um, is nicely lit. You don't want the eyes to be in shadow. Thirdly, I spoke about the ISO, so the sensitivity of the camera. It may work, you may well have to set it much higher than you would expect, particularly if you're used to other types of photography, such as landscape and that kind of thing. Number four was to be aware of your shutter speed and be aware of the kind of shutter speed that you need, depending on the result that you're going for. The fifth mistake was to be too close all the time. So don't, don't be constantly zoomed in, zoom in, zoom out, but be aware of what's going on. And be prepared to zoom out a little bit so that if things do happen quickly, you've still got the action in the frame. Number six was about not cleaning your lens. So it, it not so much about being really sloppy and careless, but it's just being aware of the environment. And there might be things in the air that are sticking on your lens. So it might be um, the blow from a whale or it might be dust that's thrown up by your vehicle or other vehicles where you are. But just constantly um, just check your lens and make sure you've got good cleaning equipment with you. Number seven was not respecting the uh, the animals. So here again, talking about ecotourism, being prepared to spend time with an animal. You know, they're not they're not there to perform for you. They're doing their thing. They're they're um, using their survival techniques. And if you are there genuinely to get good photographs of the animals. It's so important to respect them and um, to treat them, um, you know, with care. Number eight was not using a guide. So I've never been anywhere where I haven't used a guide. And um, yeah, anywhere you'll go, unless you're really, really knowledgeable about the animal, then I, you, I guess you don't need to. But uh, for the rest of us, um, having a guide can make a huge difference to the experience, how fulfilling it is, and the quality of the photographs you're able to produce. Uh, number nine is making sure you've got the right kind of, well, let's say stabilisation. You're able to get steady shots with your camera. And um, that's obviously the camera and lens combination. So I shared a hack that I use with with my um, uh, lens. Um, and also to take a beanbag or something like that, just so that you can dampen any vibrations that might be coming through um, if, if you've got, got limited options on where to um, rest your lens. And then the final one was just to dress appropriately and be aware of the colours that you're wearing. So you really want to blend in. Now, you don't, get a, you don't have to go full camo. You don't need to go, you know, the wildlife explorer's um, clothes catalogue you don't have to be ridiculous about it but um, you'll find that probably a lot of your clothes are fine um, I do like to wear lightweight clothes as well because often um, it's hot where I am but also if you're washing them they tend to dry out very quickly as well so you can if, the, if clothes are getting dusty and horrible it's nice to be able to wash them out every now and again you know at the end of the day and then have them dry for the following morning you don't want to be in a situation where your trousers are standing up on their own <laughs> so that's not ideal
Okay, so that's it for this podcast. I hope you found that interesting and uh, useful if you are um, thinking of going away. And in terms of planning, there are definitely things that I've spoken about that you can practice before you go. And um, again, something I can't stress enough, particularly if you're doing this as a one-off or uh, the kind of trip that you're not likely to do very often, the more preparation you can do, the more practice you can do, the more familiar you can get with your camera before you go, the better. And that all of that will give you the best possible chance of having some great results and having a very rewarding uh, trip. So that's it for now. I hope you have a great day, whatever you're doing, and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for with my podcast, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 